0: Let's pray once more. Our God and our Father, as we read these words, we're reminded just how sovereign you are and how even our free choices lie in your hands how great and mighty you are over all people. You hold our destinies in your hands. We're reminded again how we who are in your Son, who have trusted in your Son, have only received a gift that none of us have deserved it, that we are all in need of mercy, as we just sang. Nothing we've been given has not come from your generous hand. So we say thank you. We say thank you, and we pray today that you would make your word clear to us about a very current subject. We pray that you would make yourself clear, order our own minds according to your mind, and give us Insight into what is happening in our day. Insight that would lead to light and life and rest and joy. Oh, Father, do a work in us. Cleanse us. Purify us. And do a work out there. Do the very same work. Bring life in here. Bring life out there. For we all need it. So, Glorify yourself, in other words, in all of these things we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we are pausing Psalm 23 to ask this question, what does God think about homosexuality? What does God think about homosexuality? I'm going to answer this question from the Bible for two reasons. Because Jesus is risen from the dead and because he has ascended to God's throne in heaven. His resurrection is God's stamp of approval on his word. It says that it is authoritative in all things. And his ascension on high means that his word is authoritative over everyone, everywhere. Jesus, his resurrection, and his ascension cuts through all of our relativism. Jesus is king, and his word is authoritative over us and over the whole world. Thus, to answer our question today, what does God think about homosexuality, we're going to look at a thread that runs through the whole Bible. We're going to see the, the core problem first about homosexuality from the Old Testament, and then secondly, we will see the solution from the New Testament, and then finally, we'll ask ourselves, so what? So what? What do we do with this information? So first, the the core problem from the Old Testament, the solution from the New, and then, so what? And the core problem, I'm going to say it at the outset, is this. Autonomy, which begets envy, which begets immorality. Autonomy, which begets envy, which begets immorality. So we pick up the thread in the beginning in the garden. In Genesis, this is ground zero. God created everything with a certain order. Genesis 2.15, with, with God on top, man underneath God as his vice-regent, his, his second Lord over all other created things. Adam was meant to humbly listen to God, giving God glory with a thankful heart, lording over the rest of creation under God for God. And God made woman, Eve, as man's helper in all of this, Genesis 22, 20, and 21. But then the dragon enters the picture in chapter 3. He tempts Eve, and his primary temptation of Eve is personal autonomy, independence from God. The first thing that she does then with that autonomy is she envies what God has that she does not. Satan essentially says, God's holding out on you, and she envies what she does not have that God does, the fruit of the tree. Autonomy leading to envy. And the result is that God's order is totally flipped over. The animal now, the dragon, is on top of the order, with Eve listening to the dragon instead of her husband. And then Adam chooses to follow his wife into sin instead of leading her or, once she sinned, instead of dying for her in her place, sacrificing himself for her. And in all of it, God is pushed down, suppressed to the bottom of the order. Man is now worshiping the created thing, which only has temporary passing blessing rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. And the result is curse and death. We can trace this same strand of autonomy and envy to the story of Noah in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8. My understanding here is that the sons of God, in verse 2, are heavenly beings who, they, they see the beauty of human wisdom, or, excuse, excuse me, they see the beauty of human w- women, and they see it, and they see that beauty, and they see those women as a means to an end, a means to gain autonomy for themselves. So they leave their heavenly place to pursue what the older Bible translations called strange flesh. They mate with human women in order to create a sort of super race, independent and autonomous from God. It's called Nephilim there. But the result, verse 11, so, so, they, so they seek autonomy and they envy what they do not have and what, they have, what has not been given to them, the beauty of human women, and the result, the whole earth, verse 11, becomes corrupted, full of violence. So God floods the earth in judgment, Genesis 7. Yet afterwards, he leaves the rainbow as a sign of his mercy that he will never do this again. If I can put it this way, God is never more like God than when, as we just sang, he is showing mercy. God is is slow to anger, the Bible says, but he's on a hair trigger to show mercy. Thus, it is no coincidence later that in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28, when the prophet Ezekiel sees a vision of the glory of God surrounding the very throne of God, Ezekiel says the light of that glory is like a rainbow. Like the... The most prevalent characteristic, we can put it this way, of God, that that is pictured on the throne room of God, is God's mercy. God's mercy. God glorifies himself by every day showing mankind mercy for all of our attempts at autonomy and the envy and the human wreckage that we leave as a result. Well, from Noah, we can move on in Genesis to Genesis 19 in the city of Sodom. Abraham, the father of Israel, he settled on the plains, while his nephew Lot has settled in the city of Sodom, and angels come to visit Abraham because Genesis eighteen twenty to twenty one, real people are suffering, and they're suffering so much under other people's sin that they have no other recourse but to cry out to God in pain and agony. Thus Genesis eighteen twenty one says that the sin of Sodom is very great and grave. We will see why in a moment. So the messengers move on, these these angelic messengers, they move on from Abraham to Sodom. And meanwhile, while they're traveling, Abraham intercedes for Sodom, knowing all of their sin. Verses Chapter 18, verses 22 to 33. It ends with, with God saying that if only 10 people are found there, that he will relent, that he will not destroy Sodom. Again, the mercy of God. Well, the angels, the angelic messengers, they want to sleep in the city square, but Lot fearfully says, no, 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 you must stay with me. Chapter 19, verse 1 through 3. And why becomes quickly clear, a mob of men forms outside Lot's door demanding that he turn over the male angels to them so that they can have their way with them. And I, I, by the way, I'm, I'm trying to use circumspect language today. If you, I don't know if there's any children in the room, but I'm trying to respect uh, parents here today and Trying to use respectful, uh, circumspect language. Um, so, again, again, we see, we saw unnatural sexual relations before the flood, and now we see them again here. There was, hor- uh, excuse me, vertical unnatural relations before the flood, and now we see it horizontally. To which Lot says, "Don't do this! Don't do this!" And they reply Genesis 19 9 with the ancient version of our generation's favorite Bible verse Judge not, lest ye be judged, Lot. You will judge us? You're not even from here. But Lot is no better in this whole thing. This whole thing is scummy to the core. He offers his own daughters as a substitute for the angels. He's more concerned about hospitality than basic love for his children. He's been corrupted by California, I mean Sodom, more than he realizes. <laughs> you, you, you laugh, but I, I inserted that on purpose because there are many Christians today who are more corrupted by where they live than they realize. That's, um, the angels escape along with Lot's family. Then God burns the city with sulfuric wrath. God will not flood the world again, but he still has fire at his disposal. Some claim this story is about hospitality, not about homosexuality, but people don't cry out to God, chapter 18, verse 21, because hospitality is not properly being shown. That's not why people cry out to God. People cry out to God when they are thrown to ravenous wolves like so much meat. Sin never stays in its place. The sin out there and the sin in here never stays in its place. It always demands more and people get hurt. So does God think homosexuality is a sin? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And when sexual sin uses and abuses others, it becomes in God's eyes a great and grave sin. But thankfully, gloriously, the thread does not end here. The thread of the Bible. We come now to the solution. And the solution, God's solution to this problem is this. God's solution to our autonomy, which issues forth into envy, which issues forth into uh, immorality or strange flesh, By the way, this is what is happening, I'm I'm convinced, what is at the heart of transgenderism today? Envy. Envy. I I become autonomous, I I define who I am, independent from anyone else, and I look and I see the gender given to someone else that was not given to me, and I envy it, and so then I modify my flesh and I become strange flesh out of that envy. Envy. So what is the solution to this? God's solution is this. Ironically, wrath and mercy in Jesus. God's solution is wrath and mercy in Jesus. We keep reading our Bibles and Jesus appears, eating with sinners and prostitutes. Undoubtedly, some of them were homosexuals and with tax collectors who were hated even more than homosexuals. This was hospitality, On Jesus' part now, we are talking about glorious hospitality. Every time he was invited to a meal, it actually ended up being Jesus hosting the meal, Jesus welcoming sinners to himself to sit at his table, Jesus living out his own words at the end of Matthew 11, come to me, as we just sang, all who are labor and are weary and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Anyone. (laughs) Anyone. Anyone no matter what you've done. Are you tired and weary? Then you qualify to come and eat with me. <laughs> this reminds me of a man's story who left homosexuality to become a Christian. He was, his his uh, conversion story went like this. He was in a coffee shop, two guys sitting here having a Bible study. He says, what are you doing? They say, we're having a Bible study. And they get to talking and they say, do you want to come to our church? And he says, yes. And he comes to the church the next Sunday, the pastor preaches the gospel, and he becomes Christian. <laughs> That's the story. Amazing. You know, amazing. Uh, a guy in, in L.A. But what was remarkable, what I remember most about this man's story, is that he would say later that leaving homosexuality was the easy part. Why? Because he was so doggone tired. He was so weary from all that it demanded of him. And he needed rest and he found it in Jesus. He found it in Jesus by obeying Jesus' call, Matthew 11, verse 28, to come to Jesus and his command in verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for I promise you my yoke is easy and my burden is easy is light. Jesus never ever sat at table with sinners only to leave them there in that state at that table. Jesus aims to bring us to another better table which always requires repenting of that old table. A turning and a moving in the opposite direction from one's old life. This is why um, Matthew can describe, can summarize Jesus' whole message. Matthew 4, 17, as repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus was always calling everyone to repentance. Because, because as this man experienced, as this man experienced, Jesus' yoke, when Jesus says my yoke is easy, he's not saying... Like, he's not using like a euphemism. Like, he really means easy. He really means easy. My yoke really is easy. Oh, there's, there's complexity to unwind when we repent. But that complexity has to do with the complicating nature of sin, not Jesus' yoke. Obedience to Jesus really is an easier life. This is because he is the sort of master that you were looking for all along, gentle and lowly and heart. Thus to homosexuals and to every other kind of sinner, Jesus does not ever, ever, ever say, I hate you, ever. Nor does he ever, 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 ever say, I affirm your life and your sin. Both are true. He tells the woman caught in adultery in John 8, go and sin no more. Thus to homosexuals, he says, I love you, therefore leave that life and follow me. But God is a just God. He does not sweep our sin under the rug. So Jesus says, if you follow me, If you follow me in trade, so to speak, in love, I will deal with all of your sin myself on me. Thus, Jesus went to the cross, dying for our sins, the way Adam should have for Eve's sin. And along the way, he intercedes for us in the garden, the way Abraham interceded for Sodom. And when he hung on the cross, if you ever thought about this before, when he hung on the cross, the gospels record that though it was in the middle of the day, everything went dark, that there was darkness all across the land. Now, I can't prove this to you, but it's my opinion that the reason why it went supernaturally dark was because God supernaturally muted all the colors of the rainbow in that moment. Why? Because God was showing no mercy to his son as his son stood in our place for all of our autonomy and all of our envy and all of our impurity. Now, one more passage. Paul is thinking about all of this when he writes the book of Romans. He's thinking about the garden. He's thinking about the flood. He's thinking about Sodom. And of course, he's thinking about Jesus when he writes in chapter 1, that I am not ashamed of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 16. And he says this for two reasons, two reasons. Number one, because the gospel is God's power to fulfill what Jesus did on the cross. It is the power of God for salvation for anyone, anyone who believes. No one is righteous. Not me, not you, not anybody else. No one is righteous before God. Thus, God did everything for us in Christ, in our place. Thus, the way you receive Jesus is not by cleaning yourself up, but by coming to him in faith. You come as you are. In this fallen world, we're all fallen, and God substitutes righteousness before him with faith in Jesus, because Jesus was both completely righteous in our place, and he took all of our unrighteousness upon himself for us in our place. So that's the first reason Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. It is the very power of God for salvation for anyone. But secondly, he is not ashamed, chapter 1, verse 18, he's he's eager to preach the gospel because he sees that the wrath of God is already, already being poured out right then and right now, today. How so? Because... Because people then, up until this day, people everywhere are suppressing the truth about God, that they're pushing it down, even though verses 19 and 20, his attributes are right before our eyes. Instead of receiving our lives as a gift from God, verse 21, we insanely push down the truth about him. And so, verses 22 to 23, with all of our PhDs and our fancy titles, we become fools, We become fools and flip over the order that God created for our flourishing, just like our first mother. We exchange what should be on top, God, with created things. We seek autonomy. We seek to do things our way. This is our core sin, autonomy. We want complete freedom in every way to make our own choices to do whatever we want. But when you do that, the problem is... The problem is when you become autonomous, ironically, you lose everything because you've kicked away the source of your everything, God. There is nothing we have that has not come from his hand. So when you kick him away, when you become completely autonomous, ironically, you have gained yourself and you've lost everything. Thus, as it has been said by others, hell is the most pro-choice place there is. Because hell is where you have complete and utter freedom to make all your own choices in complete and utter autonomy from God. And therefore, hell is the place where you have literally and absolutely nothing. But God, if if that's a hard word to you, then hear this. God loves you and the rest of the world too much to leave you on that trajectory. It's a pointing of love. (laughs) Therefore, in love, he gives people up. This is one of the most ironic things you will ever read about God. In love, God gives people up to their sins. What? God gives people up to experience now, before hell, what that core sin of autonomy, where it takes us, and what it feels like. He says, have it your way. And the most basic place our autonomy takes us, just as before the flood with the angels and human women, and just as with the men of Sodom, like water running downhill, it always leads us to envy because when you get rid of God, you lose everything. Now you have nothing. So the, the fundamental human response to that is envy, to covet, to lust to want more and more and more. And this is, water runs downhill. This always goes in the form of sexual immorality, especially, verse 26, to dishonorable passions, homosexuality. Okay, so here's Paul's point. Here's Paul's point. Homosexuality is unique in this sense, that it is the, out, it is, um, the outward manifestation of sin that most clearly portrays our inward core sin. This exchanging of, of, of the order that God has created for something unnatural, for an, an unnatural ordering of things. Um, God hands people over to rejecting the very obvious sexual order that, you know, we, we just look at our bodies and our bodies tell us you were meant for this and not this. And you're meant for this one, not this one. I mean, it's like obvious, um, and yet we 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 push that down, we suppress that truth. So God hands us over to that, so we would experience that. And homosexuality is is like a living parable. That the closest thing we have amongst the gajillion ways that we know how to sin, it, it is the closest thing, the, the clearest living parable of our inward rejection in our hearts, of of the order of the cosmos that God has created for us, this seeking autonomy for ourselves. But, at the same time, Paul goes on in the next paragraph to say that homosexuality is not special or unique, and that every other sin grows out of that same core sin. I mean, what is a child doing when a child... uh, disobeys their parents, but living autonomously and walking in envy. (laughs) You know, you're not my, you know, I'm my own person and I want that cookie. You know, (laughs) that's, that's what's happened. It's the same core sin. The same core sin is operating when someone slanders someone else in church. Same core sin. Um, So, Is it unique? Yes, it is unique in in, in what it pictures most vividly among all of the sins of humanity. And yet in another sense, it's not unique at all because it all comes from the same core problem of personal autonomy, wanting to kick off God and become God's ourselves. So God hands the whole world over to the fruits of our autonomy and the fruits of our envy for what purpose? How is that good news? How is that love? Well, he does it so that we might groan under the wreckage that results and then turn back to him in faith and repentance. Romans 2 uh, verse, I, I believe it's verse 4 or it's verse 5 says that God's mercy, we've been emphasizing God's mercy, but God's mercy is given to us to lead us to repentance Therefore, every day we wake up and there's no flood or there's no sulfuric fire raining down upon us is a day of mercy given for homosexuals and for religious folk alike. Not to spend it on our lusts, but to turn from our autonomy from God to thankful worship of God. That's why today even exists. It is a moment of mercy. Okay, so what? What? <laughs> So what? what? What do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, we go to war. We go to war, but, but you just said, Jed, that Jesus loved. Jesus loved you. What are you talking about? Going to war. Yeah, we, we go to war. We go to war against the darkness. If you're Christian, you are called to war, but our implements, as I often say, are, are weapons of war, are weapons of love, the gospel. Our weapons are bread and wine and water, a body broken, blood spilled, and the washing of water of baptism, proclaimed and commanded. These are our weapons, and we are called to go to war in this dark day. But to be a good soldier in this war, you and I must embrace three things, three things, faith, shamelessness, and pain. Faith, shamelessness, and pain. Number one, faith, faith to believe the word of God that we've been reading here and to see your world, this world through its lens, through its lens, to see people through God's eyes, through the lens of scripture. So you might be asking like, why am I teasing all this out? Why am I telling Christians, here's the heart of homosexuality, this autonomy and then envy leading to impurity? Well, cause you got that same disease too. <laughs> you, you might hear on the news about sins and you didn't even know you could sin that way you you not even heard of that before and yet the core sin is the same you got the same disease and yet you know the way out you know the cure you know the sin of autonomy from god you know how that's worked itself out in your life you know what it's like to envy You ever been in church and heard a pastor talking about envy and in that moment, envying someone in church? (laughs) You know what that's like. You don't know anything about transgenderism, but you know what it's like to envy something that ain't yours. And we all know impurity. We all know the battle to walk in holiness. And you know the way to the cross. You know the way to the cross. So to see others... Not not with the outward display, but according to the heart as the Bible describes them. Thus, when you see the pride flag out, we, we need to see the pride flag and, and outward manifestations like that in, in the same way, the, the Methodist church down the street on Elk Grove Boulevard, or a pride parade whatever whatever outward manifestation of that when you see that your first thought needs to be Romans 1 oh my goodness the wrath of god is being poured out right before my eyes even upon the church it it should cause Fear. It, it should cause in us a, a feeling, something akin to what Jesus felt outside of D- Lazarus's tomb. Because, in terms of churches go, that's what's become of the Methodist Church down the street. That is not a place of life. That is a whitewashed sepulcher. That is no longer a church. It is a tomb. So, what should what, what did Jesus feel outside of Lazarus's tomb? He felt a deep. Grief, it says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept for the effects of sin, but then he also felt a deep gut level, love driven longing to see life come in its place. Thus, he would sacrifice himself to make it happen, which then should lead us to shamelessness. Shamelessness, not Shamelessness about sin, but shamelessness about righteousness. Shamelessness about righteousness and the way to righteousness. That it is not through personal autonomy, but by bringing oneself under the lordship, the reign of Jesus, who loves me and who does not demand of me, like this dark age, does not demand of me that I would cut off parts of my body to find my true self but calls me to just come and trust me and rest. And through him, he will lead me to my true identity, to my true name at the end of all things. June is, for many people, June is, is pride month, of course. But for Christians, June is hot gospel month. June is hot gospel month. June is a time for making war with the implements God has given us. Not not according to the enemy's rules. We, We don't get to engage in battle by the same orders of battle that our enemy does. We don't get to slander. We don't get to hate. We're forbidden from hating. We're also forbidden from affirming sin. Whether it's homosexuality or disobedience to parents or slander. Well, lastly... Lastly, we must embrace pain. We must embrace pain because you will be called a bigot. I mean, that's a foregone conclusion. If you engage in the battle, you, you will be called a bigot. Um, you will be hated. I mean, really. I mean, really hated. You will have your career shortened. Um... A a lieutenant general in one of the branches of service this week was just bragging about how uh, she disqualifies officers for promotion unless they are sufficiently woke. Um, You will not be considered for promotions. It will hurt. There is no threading the needle. There is no having it both ways. But Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you. They will hate you, which means that their hatred is evidence that you're with Jesus. So, uh, when they do hate you, when they do call you bigot, you know, with a uh, bigot, the first thing you do is a little touchdown dance. (laughs) The first thing you do is celebrate. For far too long, the church has been impotent. Impotent because we don't walk by faith. We are ashamed of the gospel and we are afraid of pain. We are afraid of loss. But we were reborn into a war. When we took the Christ pill, when we took the Christ pill, that entered us on a journey where we follow our Lord and his path goes down before it goes up. But gloriously, it does go up. Our salvation Your salvation, Christian, was never, ever just for you. Ever. Jesus said to us, come and follow me. He said, what he said to Matthew, he says to all of us all, and I will make you fishers of men. For June, for Christians, June is a great month to go fishing. Great month to go fishing. Well, one more thing. Um... If you are living a homosexual life, or you are tempted, or you're struggling, which, by the way, there's a distinction between those two. There's a distinction between um, you know, running headlong into sin and versus being someone who's trying to go in the right trajectory, the right direction, and struggling, and falling down, and getting back up. Two different things. If you're living a homosexual lifestyle, um, or you are tempted and, and struggling... I would invite you to come to our church. I don't don't know, maybe there's someone listening today on the video. Um, I invite you to come. Um, The first person I baptized in this church, a big part of his repentance was repenting from a homosexual lifestyle. You'd be in good company. Um, But I want to say, it'll be weird. It'll be weird for you for this reason. Because there's nothing else like the church on earth. There's simply nothing else like it, where we won't affirm any sin. Like I said, neither homosexuality, nor slander, nor disobedience to parents. But at the same time, you won't be hated. You'll be loved. You'll be loved with the closest imitation that we can do of how Jesus has loved us. So to live between those two poles, that's weird. (laughs) There's nothing else like it on earth. But it's a good kind of weird It'll feel odd because you've never experienced it before. But come, try it, come anyway, because it's leading somewhere great. I told you earlier that Jesus is leading us to a better table, one where he finds you at. And that table is is described in Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the lamb, where everyone who trusts in Jesus, no matter their sin, receives a new name a new identity, better than any identity you could have found in this life on this earth. And everyone who comes receives garments pure and white and spotless, full of glory, resonating, reflecting the glorious mercy of God shown to us. And on that day, we will all feast around the table of the Lord. Oh, what a day that will be. We will feast and we will be free, washed, accepted, loved, affirmed. Not a spot of hatred, but not a spot either of of sin one to another. Perfect harmony with your fellow man and woman. Loved purely, forever, and ever, and ever, world without end. Your soul satiated every second of the day, and you wake up in the next day, and you realize there's even more soul-satiating glory to be had. That's where Jesus is taking his people. Do you want to go there? Do you want to go there? I, I do. do. Do you want to come with us there? Come and have it. Come and have it in Christ. Well, may the Lord bless the, the teaching and preaching of his word and let's, let's pray to that end now. Father, please bless this time. Please add your blessing upon the explanation of your word. Do that which only you can do. Do supernatural work in the hearts of your people here now and your people to come. Grant us faith, Grant us a holy shamelessness and grant us to embrace pain for such was your path. And therefore I ask, grant us hope. Grant us hope of what what awaits us at this great marriage supper of the Lamb where there will be joy forevermore. You are so good to your people. Praise your name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen to that prayer. Receive the benediction. Christian, if you are in Christ, you have already overcome the world in Christ. So go resting in Him and go proclaiming Him to a generation that so desperately needs His light and life. Amen.